Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. This week on our scintillating show, comedy writer Betsy Borns is joining us to dissect the wide appeal of comedian Amy Schumer. Author Gary Phillips stops by our International World Headquarters to give us his perspective on diversity in the world of crime writers. Also, Mary Nana Ama Dankwa reads one of her favorite poems. And Boris Draljuk pays us a visit. Boris is a professor at the University of St. Andrew in Scotland, where his specialty is Russian literature, but he's here to talk today about international noir, particularly the Russian version. Sam Spadesky, who knew? Mystery writer Gary Phillips has found his way to our bunker today to discuss what's going on in the uh, in the crime fiction world insofar as writers of color are being affected by trends in the publishing industry. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Appreciate it. Part of the reason that um, we're talking today is because of this uh, piece that Sarah Paretsky, right. the new president of the Crime Writers... Uh, Mystery Writers of Mystery, America. Mystery Writers right. of America, right. Right. wrote about uh, diversity in crime fiction. Yes. Tell us what her position is. Essentially, the piece talks about the fact that, I mean, this is not a new phenomenon, that the unbearable uh, whiteness of publishing and, <laughs> and, and, how, <laughs> and how in the context of that, African-American and other writers, crime fiction and mystery writers of color, find themselves somewhat on the outs from mainstream publishing and are, are finding their way in, in other avenues or smaller presses, which is true to some extent, but it's also not exactly the case. And I mean, I was thinking about the piece and thinking about it in the context of then uh, our discussion today. Mm-hmm. You know, I looked and I saw that... Uh, Dwayne Smith, who wrote uh, 40 Acres, which is considered a thriller, uh, and I'm not giving anything away. If you go to Amazon, it says it on the, on the write-up. Well, it's that's, about, that's fair enough. It's then. fair enough. But, about, how, but how does it end? Uh, yeah, exactly, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Let me give that away. Let me just simply cut those sales right now. Where 40 Acres has to do with a group of wealthy black men who are uh, planning to bring back slavery. and But it's mm-hmm. billed as a thriller. That came out last year from uh, Atria, which is part of Simon & Schuster. Uh, my friend Rachel Hall has her second book, Skies of Ash which has to do with her black uh, female homicide LAPD detective, which is just out now from Forge. I guess what I'm really trying to say is it's it's a more nuanced discussion, a more nuanced picture than what Sarah paints in the piece. But I think the piece is a great point of discussion because it is something, in fact, that the Mystery Writers of America, the MWA, has wrestled with in the sense of how do they attract more writers of color as members. And of course, it's interesting because all writers have been talking for a while now about the changes that are be- right. have been being wrought by the digital revolution. And part of that is the squeeze that's been put on mid-list authors in that's general. Right. Exactly. And so what this piece, for me, what one of the things it brought up is that, well, it's probably true, as it has been in every other industry that's been affected this way, that anything that's considered not a potential blockbuster is getting squeezed That's out, right. That's right. right. It's, it's, uh, right. As, you, as you said, Tom, exactly. Everybody's feeling that pressure. Everybody's feeling that squeeze. And I think even certainly this becomes really more pronounced in the genre field. It's always been a different kind of writer's career to be a mystery writer than to yeah. be a, a literary writer. There's been a, a way to make a living for mystery writers for 
the, most of the 20th century, for instance, right? <laughs> and, uh, and part of her, Sarah Paretsky's point is that that seems to be the, one of the casualties of this. Well, yeah, I, but you know, I, I think it's always been a roller coaster, I think, for any writer, whether in or out of genre, or even within the fields of genre, right? Be, mm-hmm. it, be it mystery, crime fiction, science fiction, fantasy, what have you. But it's also the case that, I, well, I, here's what I'm saying or what I'm, what's really been on my mind about this. For instance, uh, there are various uh, online avenues now, out of the gutter, uh, beaten to a pulp, what have you. Do these uh, venues pay? No, they don't. Mm. Have, though, some of these venues essentially seen the birth of some of these writers who have now gone on to uh, either middle houses or, or larger houses? Yes, they have. So... The idea that there are various ways in which the material can get out there uh, have you know greatly increased, but I do agree uh, with Sarah's point in the sense that both the market pressures and just the perceptions of publishing in general, I suppose, are such that, true, the avenues to get more voices into those uh, larger houses certainly has become more restricted. Yeah, the gatekeepers are scarcer and the money is scarcer. Right. It's the microcosm of the larger issue. Right. That right. So like in the old days, you know, when uh there wasn't that division between the acquisition editor and the line editor and the head editor and this and that, right? So that you you had a relationship with an editor and that editor was, you know, the champion of your work within the confines of the house, the publishing house, and helped to bring you along and nurture you and all that sort of stuff. But you're right, those days are over. Although now having just said that, it's probably true that within the smaller houses, I think there's some degree of that that goes on. Uh, I, I'm going to cite both Akashic and Polis books who, are bo- who I've both done work for, uh, where those are places where, you know, because I know or have a relationship with the, the persons who are the publishers, I just pitch them the idea. And so they, I get a yes or a no, but I get a yes or a no quickly. Yeah. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I am Seth Greenland here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. We are talking to Gary Phillips. So back in the days of the pulps, pulp writers worked for, uh, you know, whatever it was, right? Penny a word, half a penny a word. And they had to grind it out. There's these great stories about uh, Walter Gibson who... Uh, essentially created and wrote The Shadow. The Shadow was like the number yep, one yep. selling character pulp magazine. In fact, at one point, I believe The Shadow, they published it twice a month. And for the bulk of those stories, and they, we're talking about, in those days, what they called a noveling story was forty to 50,000 words. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. It's still a lot of words, and especially if you're grinding out 100,000 words a month. month. Yeah. And apparently, the, 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 and it may be apocryphal, but the story goes that Gibson would type so hard so fast that his fingertips would bleed at, at different points. But those guys had to do it. They had to get the work done, and they had to get the copy out. Now, not all of it was great literature. True. But in those days, that was a big mass form of entertainment. You could get this big, thick pulp magazine with a feature-length story and several short stories as backup for a dime and then eventually a quarter. And so in some ways, I think, right, we have seen now, because of the, the explosion of, of e-books and digital platforms and print-on-demand, which is a fancy... Xeroxing, right, mm-hmm. uh, has allowed now entities that wouldn't have existed before to get some work out there. This then gives me a great segue and a plug. A couple of years ago, I co-edited something called Black Pulp. Right. And Black Pulp, well, I, let me back up a second. We talked a little bit about the days of pulp. Now as it happens, here we are in 2015, 
some of those old pulp characters have now fallen into public domain. They haven't been renewed. Some are still licensed, like Condé Nast owns The Shadow. And, but some of those characters have fallen by the wayside. And so as a kind of um, fan fiction mm. grew out of this, so these old pulp fans, aficionados then, but as we also know from the days of pulp, uh, there weren't a lot of minority characters in those pulp stories. There's a few. There's actually a couple of exceptions. Um, the Avengers actually often cited... Uh, among his crew were two uh, married couple, two black folks who uh, put on the Step in the Fetched Act in the context of cover in the stories, but then was always revealed that they were very smart and intelligent, etc. But nonetheless, there wasn't a lot of writers of color. There were a few women writers uh, writing the pulps. Anyway, so all that is to say is that so now we have these characters now fall in public domain. People came along, started writing these characters. And as this started to happen, coincided with our, our, these new technology we've been talking about, people started to then publish their work. And initially those formats were crappy, covers were terrible, margins weren't paid attention to, typos weren't paid attention to, etc. But as these things developed, the work got tighter, the standards, the discipline uh, started to come more into that area, that field as well. And so um, uh, with Prose Press uh, out of Arkansas, uh, we had an introduction written by Walter Mosley. We had a story by Joe R. Lansdale, who's a Edgar Award-winning writer. Anyway, all that to say is that we had the idea of doing uh, pulp stories, but we're going to reinvent it. We're going to circumvent the old confines, and we're going to say, okay, you can do a, a Jungle Lord character, but rather than a white Jungle Lord, how about a black Jungle Lord? Or if you want to do an aviation story, how about a black aviatrix? That mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. so that was what came to bear in, in black pulp. Uh, which did quite well for Pro Se, and apparently, uh, not not apparently, I know this because Tommy has told me this, and you know, I've gotten a couple of checks. Uh, it's a, it's like their biggest seller. And then from that then came uh, Asian Pulp, which is coming out soon, should be out next month. Uh, Naomi Hirohara, Steph Cha, uh, Leonard Chang. We have a great assortment of writers uh, coming out for Asian Pulp as well. Hmm. But that could only happen because I could literally get Tommy on the phone, the editor-in-chief of Pro Se, because Pro Se is small enough at this moment, that I could just get him on the phone and pitch him the idea, and he went for the idea. Whereas, right, if in a larger house, I tried to get that idea going, as we know, my agent's got to float it to the editor, the editor's then got to beat it up, and then they got to go have, <laughs> and then they got to have that meeting, and you know, the marketing has got to get involved, and they and say, "Oh, Black Pulp, ain't nobody gonna buy that." <laughs> you know, anyway. Joining us now is Mary Nanama Dankwa, who's a, a native of Ghana, as it turns out, but a native of Los Angeles for many years uh, as well. Uh, an author, editor, freelance journalist, ghostwriter, screenwriter, speechwriter, author. Jack of all trades. Yeah. <laughs> and master of many of them. Willow Weep for Me, A Black Woman's Journey Through Depression, came out from Norton in 1999. And um, she's also the editor of several anthologies. Becoming American, Personal Essays by First-Generation Immigrant Women, Shaking the Tree, New Fiction and Memoir by Black Women, and The Black Body. I'm not somebody who really goes out of my way to look for information on writers. I think it's slightly perverse how we like to deconstruct writers' lives and find out everything about them and what, co what color socks do they wear, what kind of computer do they write on, and all of that. I really appreciate the work. This um, woman, her name is uh, Warsan Shire, 
and she's a Kenyan-born Somali poet and writer. She resides in London. I first heard of her because I purchased her chapbook called Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth. And she, isn't it a great title? And she has a book which is part of a series of seven African poets being introduced. And the series is edited by Kwame Dawes and Chris Abani. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, series. And her book is called Our Men Do Not Belong to Us. And this poem just, it just blew me away. What we own. Our men do not belong to us. Even my own father left one afternoon, is not mine. My brother is in prison, is not mine. My uncles, they go back home and they are shot in the head, are not mine. My cousins, stabbed in the street for being too or not enough, are not mine. Then the men we try to love say we carry too much loss, wear too much black, are too heavy to be around, much too sad to love. Then they leave, and we mourn them too. Is that what we're here for, to sit at kitchen tables, counting on our fingers the ones who died, those who left, and the others who were taken by the police, or by drugs, or by illness? or by other women, it makes no sense. Look at your skin, her mouth, these lips, those eyes. My God, listen to that laugh. The only darkness we should allow into our lives is the night, for even then, we have the moon. I love that. I love that poem. And she has many, many, many other poems like that. Warsan Shire, and um, the book is called Our Men Do Not Belong to Us. A few weeks ago, we had our friend Boris Dralukin. He talked to us about uh, noir fiction, American and Russian. I asked him to tell us uh, about a Russian crime fiction writer that we should all know about. Yes. I think most people know about him now, but uh, one of the most successful contemporary crime fiction novelists is uh, Andrei Kurkov, who wrote a series of novels uh, uh, with penguins in them. <laughs> yes. Death and the well, Penguin, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for people who don't know, tell, us, yeah. tell them what Death and the Penguin is about. Well, I, it's been a while since I read it, so I don't think I'm going to recast the plot, but it is in many ways a philosophical crime novel that involves a man and a penguin, as well as, and this is true, social ales of contemporary post-Soviet space, including oligarchs. In many ways, this penguin is the monkey uh, that's being carried out in a casket in Sunset Boulevard. It's uh-huh. a kind of, it's a, an emblem of excess, but it becomes something else through the course of the novel. So it's a wonderful, and Kurkov is very good at this, and he's done this in, in a variety of forms. It's a wonderful way of teasing symbols and transforming symbols out of the detritus of Soviet and post-Soviet reality. He's very good at this. Uh, I've just translated a novel by him that should be out uh, in a year or two, uh, who knows, publishing schedules, Mm -hmm. that is a very early work, not a crime novel, what we would call a postmodern novel, but of course he was not aware of that term even uh, when he was writing it. This was a novel written in the the 1980s that took in a great swath of post-Soviet reality and uh, crafted a picaresque narrative, a, a surreal picaresque narrative that touches on such a large variety of emblematic elements of the Soviet experience. 
Yeah, Death and the Penguin is about it, the penguin shows up because the zoo has everything's yeah, falling apart. Exactly, everything's exactly. falling apart, and so the zoo has just kind of let the animals go, exactly. and he's picked up the penguin and is keeping it in his bathtub, mm-hmm. throwing some ice in um, as needed. But he gets very, very close to the penguin, so it's exactly. a little surrealistic, but it's well, also a little just realistic. Ex- absolutely, right? absolutely. Now, Kirchhoff is Russian or is Ukrainian? He is a ethnically Russian. Uh, he is linguistically Russian, but he considers himself a Ukrainian. Author. He lived in Kiev. Yes, his whole life. And uh, now he uh, splits his time. Uh, he lives mostly in the UK. But I think he still considers himself a Ukrainian author. And I think for good reason. His life's experience is a Ukrainian experience. Part of the, the nature of Ukraine is that you can have a Ukrainian experience all in Russian yes. and still be Ukrainian. Well, the two languages were the same until the 17th century? Or is that, is that a, do I have that right? Not entirely incorrect as I would say to students. <laughs> you certainly have a good point there. Thank you, Professor. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> uh, not entirely incorrect. Um, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the case. Neither language was formalized, really, until that time. I just remember a translator in Odessa yeah. who I was talking to, she translated for, uh, between Russian and, and Greek, yes. screaming at me that Ukrainian is not a real language. Oh, well, that's not... You know, that, it's n- that's absolute nonsense. That's absolute <laughs> and, nonsense. And what that's had you done to her before the... Well, maybe she was screaming about something else and I just thought it was... About, yeah, yeah, that's nonsense. Ukrainian is, is a language. Uh, all right, let's start with this. The classic joke about the difference between a language and a dialect is that uh, a language is a dialect with uh, an army and a navy. <laughs> so you could look at it cynically, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Ukraine does have an army, yeah? but but that's not the point. I, I don't think that's I the seem, distinction. They seem to be losing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. The distinction is that Ukrainian is a formalized literary language. It has a literary tradition. For those who uh, have not grown up hearing Ukrainian, Russian speakers who have not grown up hearing Ukrainian, or people who pick up Russian as a foreign language, Ukrainian is not intelligible. If you've grown up in the Soviet Union or the post-Soviet space and you hear enough Ukrainian or read enough texts that incorporate some Ukrainian, you'll be able to understand some part of pure Ukrainian. It may be mutually intelligible, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily. Even people who have lived their entire lives in Russia may not understand Ukrainian. So this novel um, that you've just translated, the title is? The title at this point, point is uh, Bigford's World. The Bigford in the title is the inventor of the safety fuse, the British engineer who invented the, the safety fuse. Uh-huh. I will not go into it. Stay okay. tuned. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah. But we're expecting it in a year and a, in and a, a bit. Uh, yes. From the publisher. From, from Quercus, um, Maclehus uh, in the UK. Quercus mm-hmm. is the, yeah, the people who discovered Stieg Larsson. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7. We are joined today by my friend Betsy Borns. Betsy and I have known each other since we worked on your show of shows in the late 50s with Sid Caesar. <laughs> oh, Sid. <laughs> She's worked on Friends. That's not a joke. Roseanne, she co-created with Will Smith, All of Us. Betsy, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour. You're welcome. Having worked on your show of shows, I've got a face for radio. I uh, <laughs> I look very young to everyone who can't see You me. look so young. Very dewy. And I'm glad that we're doing it naked today because you really just <laughs> look so good. I'm actually not naked. I'm just wearing oh, flesh-colored, yeah. uh, a nice. flesh-colored sweatsuit. Nice oh, yeah. thing. I wish, so I, had, I wish I had thought of yeah, that. I'm a, nice I have a flat stomach. It's these, these roles oh, are all... Uh, 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 yeah, no, I, I can see that. Folded clothing. Okay. Christopher Hitchens said women can't be funny. 
and uh, you know <laughs> Betsy is one of the gazillion women who prove that isn't true. And we're having her, her here today to talk about Amy Schumer. My take on Amy Schumer is she's a woman who wears her vagina on her sleeve, which uh, I <laughs> let, think... Let people which, take that in for a minute. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> I love that she has taken the word vagina and its ill-fitting cousins and, uh, and, and brought it into the mainstream. Yeah, in an oddly light way. Yes. Right? But the thing I, you know, first, she came, kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, she's been around for a long time, but her first persona on those roasts was no one knew who she was, and she was just the slut. Everybody made fun of her for being a slut. Her own jokes were about herself being a slut. That was her whole bit, and it didn't look like she was going anywhere. Right. Right? And then, with her show, it broke out in a way that say Sarah Silverman's show never broke out, even though Sarah Silverman is incredibly talented. Right. Amy Schumer has managed to talk about things that everyone's thinking about. And whereas uh, Sarah Silverman pleased Sarah Silverman's fans, Amy has now become a spokesman for everyone. I think, in my opinion, a thing that has taken Amy wide is that she is offensive enough to get the Dangerfield crowd, which tends to be the male anti-crowd, but she's feminist enough to get the me crowd and anyone who's, who's uh, any aging Jewesses out there or left-wing people. That's who she gets. She has feminist messages that are actually funny. Absolutely. Um, I'm thinking of a sketch that she did about Julia Louis-Dreyfus's last bleepable day. Right. And right. I mean, honestly, it's just, it was the most feminist of messages, but it didn't cut corners comedically. Absolutely. It's just funny because I love that the subtext is, this is pretty bad, but if it was any worse, I'd be a guy. And that's not so great either. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. it's like... That's the alternative. Yeah. And, and, and what was the other skit that you mentioned? Uh, the... the uh, A bunch of women, they meet each other by accident on the street corner at Gravercy Park, and, and they all say... God, you knew the location even. Well, I couldn't I just, have gone to the block. I just that's remember. And, and, and so it's like, oh my God, Amy, you look amazing. No, and, no. And Amy's like, oh, I'm a cow. They worship me in India. I look awful. <laughs> and then every compliment is met by something like that. Just you cannot, you cannot you take cannot compliment yeah and it's it's very funny but it doesn't have an ending one of the reasons she's exploded the way she has is because she takes these little things that are really universal and people connect to them in a way that you know you alluded to sarah silverman before a larger audience couldn't connect because what she was doing is sarah silverman and i think one of the reasons to introduce lena dunham into the conversation the way amy schumer i think has just exploded comedically in a way that lena dunham hasn't is lena dunham's show and her world is very much about lena dunham right well, I, but is, it, is, I have to say a word for, for Lena Dunham. I mean, no one knew who she was before girls, and almost immediately now, she became the world is a major her. cultural <laughs> figure. Everyone's I mean, enemy. she did explode, yeah. and, and I think she wouldn't have been able to do that if she weren't writing about something larger than Lena Dunham. I, What's I, larger than Lena Dunham? No, I'm sorry. Uh, I Ethel, actually, Ethel I'm, Merman. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the question you never thought you'd ask. I love, I think in, in a way, Lena Dunham frees women in a way that Amy Schumer frees them through her mind and Lena Dunham frees them physically. Mm-hmm. There's no part of Lena Dunham's body I haven't seen and there's no part of Amy Schumer's mind that I haven't read. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. But and al- and they're not yeah. cleaned first. But also what they both share is an incredibly refreshing lack of vanity. Mm-hmm. One of the best things Amy Schumer did this season was her parody of 12 Angry Men. <laughs> it was great. Uh, a, 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 an, entire, an entire episode long 
uh, sketch where shot in black and white, like the movie Twelve Angry Men, where what they were debating was whether Amy Schumer was hot enough to be on television. On cable. On, on cable. <laughs> on cable. And she cast it. With, Paul Giamatti was in it, and uh, John so John Hawks was in it, and Jeff Goldblum, and they just ripped her, and it was so funny. But if and they had just been ripping her, it wouldn't have been as funny. They're ripping her, but they're doing it in exactly the visual style and the and with the music of this old right. movie. See, this is the this is the way we do this. We we invite a guest and then we don't let them to. Let oh, them Betsy, talk I'm sorry. No, I'm <laughs> sorry. I, is my microphone on? Betsy's I'm sorry. Here. I have nothing to say. I uh, Amy who? Uh, no, I love that. But it's it's really it's sort of like uh, taking the N word back. It's sort of women making fun of themselves like that, but looking like Amy. Schumer is our way of taking the n-word back mm-hmm. um and it's sort of it if you just make fun of yourself but you look like Tony Field I don't know that that we've come very far just like Alina Dunham being naked with a uh, less than perfect body what she's doing by taking off her clothes is the equivalent of nuclear war yes it's just if you are if you <laughs> exactly. are if you if you're a man and you take off your clothes you're vaguely interesting like uh, uh and if you're a woman and you take off your clothes you've just started the next world war it's like oh my eyes are melting how Jesus dare she get that away get to, i don't want to see that no it's truly it's truly incredible and again amy schumer i think this is a subtext in her work is everything that women do men have to do a little better and everything men do that's not so bad when women do it it's horrific mm. and so yeah. Betsy you, you've been funny forever how is it just till now how, how <laughs> is it how is, how is it changed in in the comedy business for you because I noticed two two of your early credits you work with really strong women you work with Marta Kaufman at, at Friends, you work with Roseanne at a show. What was the name of that show? Uh, Friends? Uh, no, that yeah. one was uh, yeah. Roseanne, yeah. I think they call uh, it. Has it changed at all? You know, I was just speaking about this uh, last night with somebody in, who was asking about oh, my kids, actually, somebody. It wasn't somebody, it was my kids. Um, we were talking about gay people's portrayal on television, and I said when we did the lesbian kiss on the Roseanne show, literally the network said Roseanne cannot kiss a lesbian. And we said, but she's not a lesbian. She's married and she has a family. And they said, but America will think if she kisses a lesbian, she's a lesbian. Now it would not be anything. It's nothing. They would, it's, oh, Roseanne's having sex with a lesbian. Well, but she's married, so it's fine. It's it's gone <laughs> so far. We couldn't show it. We couldn't talk about it. Um, on Friends, we did the lesbian wedding, which was just as shocking. And now it's sort of like there's nothing left except getting on on stage and screaming vagina, which Amy Schumer's taking care of. Mm-hmm. She goes one step further. She actually did does an impression of a vagina, which is my favorite. Amy bit. does? Yes. It's her. She talks about women having to shave their pubic hair. And then she does an impression of a waxed vagina and basically says it looks like an old man. And I, in fact, I, I, I'd like to say that I did it for some people last night, but I didn't. I did it for my children. Again, Wait, you waxed your vagina? Uh, you <laughs> waxed your vagina for your children? I'm no, sorry. No, this is my face. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. My name is Beth. It's no. hard to tell in this life. <laughs> I don't like to... Uh, is it the hat? Am I... Anyway, I should have put on lipstick. <laughs> Okay, wait, what happened last night? (laughs) So I was talking about Amy Schumer, and I have a daughter, and I think, you know, as I hear myself talk, I'm thinking, I have a daughter, and I think a good feminist message 
is telling them about a comedian who does an impression of a waxed vagina. I'm rethinking it now. No, you were right. You're right. So, uh, no, but she does it. a fabulous impression. It's like, uh, it's like, I'm so angry. You know, it's, it's sort of, <laughs> I, anyway. It's just, there are two fingers. What you can't see is there are sort of two fingers that you line up with your mouth that make it really seeable. Thanks to Betsy Borns, our old friend Boris Draluk, Mary Nana Amadankwa, and Gary Phillips. Thanks to our producer and moral center, Jerry Gorin, the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, I'm Seth Greenland, and you've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour on 90.7 KPFK-FM. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download the podcast at iTunes. Give us a rating if you feel like it. We like five stars. See you next week.